0: Love Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and Medhab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Well, good morning, good morning, good morning. What a wonderful day it is here in Southern California. I have to tell you, this is the first time in a long time that we've done a live broadcast. For the entire year, I've been doing podcasts that were pre recorded just to make sure that the sound quality was perfect, that any kind of glitches were removed. And I'm out on a limb today. I'm way out on a limb because I wanted to be able to allow live callers to get on board with us and ask our guests questions. I have Ryan Atkins, the reigning champion of obstacle racing. He's on live. We're going to talk about the upcoming world championships. We're going to talk about a lot of things. And guess what? If you want to talk to them, too, I'm going to let you do it. All you have to do is call this number. It's 347-996-5851. I'll say it again. Call 347-996-5851, and we will allow you the opportunity to speak directly with Ryan Atkins and ask your burning questions and or make comments and with no further ado let me see if i can get a live mic on ryan hey ryan how are you brother i'm good man how are you
1: good good Uh, a little bit tired but uh pretty awesome
0: i was assuming that you were going to have to sleep in after that little event you did yesterday
1: (laughs) yeah a little bit of extra sleep was uh definitely required
0: wow that was rough
1: yeah yeah it was an awesome awesome day out so uh super excited about that and yeah just taking it easy today I guess
0: so I gotta ask you do you do this type of thing so that you can just intimidate the people you plan on racing or do you do it because you feel like it's necessary to prepare for your races
1: uh no well I do it kind of for two reasons one is I love doing that kind of stuff I love kind of Challenging myself, and I guess that's why a lot of people do obstacle races in general. They like, they like to see how far they can push themselves, and they like to kind of break off the biggest challenge they can find. And um, the other facet is, uh, I think it's just great training, and it's the easiest way to totally smash yourself is uh, big mountain
0: miles. Yeah, well, I guess that'll do it. So you had like a nine <laughs> hours worth nine hours worth of running, fifty some odd kilometers a whole yeah. bunch of vertical climb.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it ended up being about uh almost 16,000 feet of uh ascent yesterday.
0: Wow. So, big day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how you feeling aside from being tired from yesterday?
1: Pretty good actually. The body uh the body held up really well. I did the same run last summer a bit earlier in the summer. And um my hips were a shot after that one last year, but uh today, you know, just a little bit of uh, pain in the Achilles and um, other than that feel pretty great.
0: Wow. So I got to tell you, I've been talking to lots of folks and, you know, I'm sitting out here like a voyeur and I'm speculating and I'm trying to conclude who's going to be the man and who's going to do this or do that. And uh, your name comes up a lot. I mean, a lot of times people would say, well, this world championships for Spartan, this is going to be a lock for Ryan. And I, I don't know. Do you feel like that? Do you feel pretty spunky about that?
1: Well, I don't think anything's ever a lock. Um, I mean, I think I was right there last year in the runnings, and then uh, I kind of just missed it. But, I mean, myself, John, or Cody all could have uh, could have won that day. We were all in striking position. And so, um, I don't know, my training this year has just been such, to put myself uh, back in that position and maybe even um, in a better position in order to kind of get to that point this year. So I don't know, it's going well and I feel, feel good and confident, but until that day, you you never really know.
0: Uh, I don't know if you picked up on it, but I did an interview with John Albin. I think it was a week last, last week, week before last. And um, he doesn't think he's got a shot. <laughs>
1: Yeah, John. Uh, yeah, it's funny hearing that. John's awesome. I love John, and uh, he's super humble and um, just a great guy. And he'll—he's uh, pretty self—self—appreciating. Uh, uh, and um, but then on the day of, you know, he's just a a wily competitor. <laughs> so I think John always has a shot. And uh, well, yeah, you
0: know, it's like. It- in one breath, he's telling me, well, you know, I, I don't deal well with altitude. And then he's doing these sky races, and these sky races are like twelve, fourteen thousand 14,000 feet. <laughs> and, and he's talking yeah. about diving down these descents, you know, because I guess in Europe, these sky races, they give you the option of instead of going down the cross, uh, the, uh, uh, the switchbacks, you could just go ahead and dive right down the center of that stuff if you, if you want to risk it. Because they figure if you're eating enough to try it, they're going to let you do it. that's awesome yeah and he's all over it so and then then he's talking to me about going to do the Matterhorn (laughs) you know and and I'm saying and and you're telling me that you're worried about altitude
1: (laughs) yeah that's awesome it's pretty
0: ridiculous it really is pretty ridiculous
1: I think I think what's exciting uh for me from my perspective is that with guys like John and myself um and some of the other athletes getting more into you know big um mountain adventures and uh you know doing really cool inspiring big lines in the natural world it kind of will hopefully push the sport maybe out of the gym a little more and more into uh you know running and exploring incredible sceneries because uh i don't know i think that's the best way to prepare and like from a physiological and spiritual way it's like the most refreshing so it's pretty exciting
0: well you know it's interesting you bring that up because it seems to me you know being a coach and working with athletes and a lot of athletes that are calling me and asking me well what do you think i should do and and what should i do now we got so many weeks left and you know what am i going to do and, and and they keep trying to supplement the the need to actually get out there and get in the stuff and do it i mean you know, don't talk to me about. Oh, I'm going to go for a bike ride, uh, or, you know, I'm going to go to the gym and you know swing kettlebells. I'm thinking, get your ass out in the in the in the <laughs> woods, man, and climb a hill. Yeah. Go go find a hill. You know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Totally.
0: And it seems like they just anything they can do to avoid having to really get out there and and feel it. Um, they seem to want to try to do, and and I don't know. I just can't. It seems like you know you the, I guess from a physiological perspective, as you suggested, what we talk about is sports specificity, right? if mm-hmm. If you're gonna have to be challenged by trail, you better go find yourself some trail, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I mean'm I'm a, I'm a huge believer in specificity, and um, I think I think some guys like I know Hobie and uh, Matt Novakovich, for example, they do a ton of their training and mileage on like incline trainers and treadmills, and to me, it's like okay, not, not we're not racing up uh, incline trainers, we're racing up you know rugged hills and down them. So from an injury pre- prevention perspective, I guess it makes sense doing what they're doing, but from a specificity perspective, uh, <laughs> I'd much rather be out on real trails.
0: Well, I would imagine that part of the reason why they would do that is convenience, you know, with A lot of these guys, uh, their jobs are demanding and they're, they're just trying to get the work in whenever they can and being able to, you know, work it out at home is kind of what they might feel like they have to do. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that too. So, you know, I had this crazy idea, um, about a treadmill. Uh, so try to imagine a treadmill that might be say, uh, eight to 10 feet wide and about, um, 15 feet long with the ability to go up to about a 45% grade. And then the surface of the belt be kind of like something the Flintstones would make, have a bunch of rocks and roots and stuff attached to it. So that you're basically uh, in this artificial environment dealing with more natural application <laughs> you know i i try to imagine what it might look like i guess it would have to be pretty far off the ground in order to accommodate the the bumps and the rocks and stuff that you essentially attach to the belt but what do you think
1: yeah i think that's a pretty cool idea i know um <laughs> i know cross-country skiers use these enormous uh kind of treadmills that they ski on and they're kind nice. of um it's probably the closest thing i've seen be just due to the size that they are but uh incorporating natural elements that are even, you know, removable and that you can kind of alter so that you don't have the same, you know, <laughs> elements going by over and over and over every run.
0: Right. Uh, you know, it's,
1: that'd be, that'd be pretty cool.
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I actually own uh, a treadmill that's that this weird, the type of treadmill you're talking about um, the company that built my treadmill makes that kind of treadmill. And they, they also use it for hockey players where they, they yeah. actually skate. They skate on it, and they might be able to get like three or four guys abreast. um, Yeah. uh, Cross-country skiing and what have you on it. And they've actually got one that you could put a road bike on where it'll go up to, uh, I think it's um, 45 kilometers per hour. (laughs) And the thing, uh, well, my my belt goes, uh, I guess it's about the same, about 28 miles per hour.
1: Uh,
0: But um, it has sensors on the front of it so that, you could ride the bike on the belt without being attached to anything, and it senses the speed of the bike and it will slow mm-hmm. down or speed up relative to what the bike's doing. So, cool. if you have to slow down, the belt slows down. If you speed up, and it's all instantaneous, it happens at the same time. And then you have a tether That's that cool. kind of keeps, yeah, if you get tossed, it'll catch you. But you know, these things are like a <laughs> hundred thousand bucks, right? You know, it's yeah. like way expensive. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, to that. So you 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 tossed out some names. You talked about Cody. You talked about Hobie. You talked about John Alban. Um, who who do you think's a, a dark horse? I've heard heard people talking about Chad Trammell as potentially somebody to watch out for.
1: Um. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> the, calling a dark horse would be uh, the hardest thing to do because the whole point is that you you'd have no idea. So I don't know. There was um, the guy who came third at Palmerton um Robert Killian he was uh he was very strong at that at that race and um I mean I think if you're going to talk about a dark horse then he might be the ultimate example just because no one he, you know he only did kind of one or two races and um it'd be awesome to see him come out and throw down and yeah Chad's a very strong runner too and I hope he has a great race so it <laughs> should be a fun day
0: yeah i think it's going to be a good it's going to be an interesting event it really is so let's talk about world's toughest mudder now there's there's scuttlebutt out there that you're gonna uh opt to uh compete as a team any truth to that
1: yeah yeah there's definitely some truth to that i think uh I, i i mean i love the event and i love going out and um punishing myself there but uh I think it would just be so much fun doing it as a team, and with the $100,000, 100-mile incentive, I think it's the obvious choice. So I'm in the process of putting together a a pretty solid team, and I don't think we're quite ready to announce all the team members, but um, suffice to say that it would be a pretty strong team, and I think we'd hold a very good chance of hitting that 100-mile mark
0: okay so i'm going to try to dig it out of you i understand john is probably one of the guys
1: (laughs) yeah he's one of the guys
0: okay so that's two we got (laughs) two left so you got some people on the fence about it or you just don't want to share
1: um i just don't want to share i think we're going to make make an announcement when it's uh you know totally locked down and
0: all right. I don't know, maybe try okay.
1: to hype, hype it up a little bit, but
0: um, yeah, okay, I can live with that. It's a solid team. <laughs> I can live with that. And so, um, last year's team winner, um, Hunter and his gang, um, I think they turned in about 85 miles. And they're suggesting. I know I had conversation with Hunter about it, and he felt pretty pretty strongly that his team has a pretty good shot this time around too, because. Uh, everybody on his team is a better athlete than they were last year. So yeah. now what I'm concerned about is, obviously enough, you're only as good as your last man in this event. Correct. So yeah. when you consider that the best team last year turned in 85, uh, 15 miles more, that's a lot of work, right? it's a three the more big laps? Advantage. Yeah. yeah. Three more yeah. laps. Um.
1: I think, like, my my thought on the whole kind of event and kind of simplifying it as much as I can is that it all comes down to who has, like, the biggest engine, really. Because um, basically at the 24-hour event, everyone's going to be operating, you know, at probably 60%. And you can't really – if you go too hard, you're just going to break down. So whoever has the highest, you know, the highest VO2 max and – the biggest engine, and who can sit at who's you know sixty percent is the highest. They're going to be the ones who just turn out the most miles, and that's um, I think that holds true as long as you don't get injured, and as long as you know your your don't your running mechanics don't fall apart halfway through the race or anything like that. So um, there's a lot of little things to screw up, but that's the overarching uh, overarching thought behind it from my perspective.
0: Yeah, I would agree with you. I think that it comes down to um, a pacing strategy that's a winning formula, and mm-hmm. I think there's there's a lot of consideration for the care um, of the body while you're you're going through this as well. Because running a hundred miles with a wetsuit, and I'm sure you know better than anyone in the world, is no picnic, right? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah exactly. I mean,
0: I can imagine just just getting chafed and trying to run with that stupid thing on uh it just must be a nightmare
1: yeah yeah it's uh it's not ideal that's for sure but um <laughs>
0: it's not I mean, ideal. it does have, <laughs> it does
1: have <laughs> its advantages too because uh whenever you're doing any of the crawls or something it's like a having a big protective layer over your entire body so that's kind of nice
0: oh yeah and then you get to wash it off about uh what 25 times <laughs> in, the, in that lake.
1: yeah per lap <laughs>
0: So what what's that like anyway? I'm just really curious. I've seen the video clips. I've not been out there, and incidentally, I hope to be there this year. I want to, you know, we've talked about cool. maybe me coming coming out and offering a little support. Um, but what's it like to jump into that water so many times and having to get across? How, how far is that lake you got across?
1: Um, well, there's there was a few different course crossings last year. I think per lap we were probably in the water four times ta- four or five times and um each swim was maybe only 50 yards 25 50 yards something like that but um one of the times was the big cliff jump which kind of kicks your butt every time you do it <laughs>
0: it's
1: just like a huge wow well, i
0: thought right? you had to do it i thought you had to do it every lap
1: yeah so you had to do during all the daytime laps they made us go off the cliff jump but then they shut it down at night for safety so uh, but then there's other swims too, that you're kind of in and out in and out. So uh, yeah, it's pretty, uh, it's pretty unique in that respect. Lots of lots of repetition and lots of kind of transitioning from swim to run to obstacle to swim to run.
0: Man, you know, I had a conversation with Nicodemus Holland um, the day before yesterday about putting together a um, we're gonna co-present a trail running clinic I'm gonna let him do all the technical stuff and I'm gonna you know help people with uh, general mechanics but um, you know he's talking about doing a team as well and as you know he suffered dearly uh, last year in that he Mm
1: -hmm.
0: he opted out of wearing a wetsuit and it got the better of him about 60 miles deep
1: yeah yeah that'd be
0: so that's pretty much out of the question you 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 pretty much gotta wear a wetsuit to do this thing right
1: um yeah i mean it gets cold enough in that climate at night that you're you're pretty much you'd be screwed if you didn't have a wetsuit on or at least some sort of way of keeping yourself warm through repeated immersions because you're just not producing enough body heat to counteract all the um all the times you get wet so in the normal oCR you're 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 burning so hot that dipping in and out of water you know it doesn't really affect you but you're you're going at a much lower pace at world Toughest and so I think that's why you need the wet suit
0: I see so are you planning on doing the um OCR championships too
1: yeah yeah I'll be doing the oCR championships I'll do the battle for our championships too but I don't think I'm gonna do warrior dash this year it's just kind of a <laughs> I don't know. It wasn't very exciting for me last year and uh I didn't like their obstacles or the course very much.
0: Okay. But um we're looking at World Championships Spartan, World Championships OCR, World Championships Toughest Mudder. Yeah. And th- so are you going to have an off season?
1: <laughs> yeah, that'd be nice. um <laughs> probably uh <laughs> <laughs> probably december january february will be uh, off season i guess for me
0: and so off season for me for you for you excuse me for you means that you're going to be doing a lot of cross-country skiing and and playing in the mountains like that right
1: yeah that's the plan yeah yeah i love the i love the snow and winter and stuff so it'll be good
0: listen i want to give another shout out to people i had a bunch of people saying they were going to call in and i don't know they got cold feet I think something about actually getting live on a microphone scares people. But I just want to remind people that are listening that if they want to call in, they got any burning questions for Ryan, the number to call is 347-996-5851. Don't be a scaredy cat. Call. Ask the questions. So yeah. um, on, on Facebook, we were bantering back and forth about, um, you know, speculation of who's going who's gonna to win this uh, Spartan event. And um, I was surprised at some of the comments that were made. And I was also surprised at how many people were so heavily uh, bent on the altitude. And I don't know how high they intend to take you guys at Tahoe, but um, the base altitude at Tahoe is about 6,000 feet. So I I couldn't imagine you going any more than a couple thousand vertical feet beyond that. What's your thought? Yeah.
1: Yeah, I think, I think we started around 62, and we're pro- I think we're going to top out at uh, 80, 86, I believe, is the top of Tahoe Peak. So, um, I mean, it's not going to be nearly as bad as Breckenridge, but it's definitely going to be enough to affect people. And, um, yeah, so it's kind of somewhere in between.
0: Ryan? Hello. Oh, hey. Oh, I'm sorry, I lost you.
1: Sorry. Yeah. Can you? Hear? Yeah.
0: Can you? I can hear you. All right. Cool. So, well, yeah. I mean, I realized that obviously enough, if if you're a sea level dwelling person, that going up to six, eight thousand feet, that's gonna it's gonna have an effect on you. But it's not like uh, a lot of places that I can think of, especially places that uh, you're spending a lot of your time, and and I know some of the other athletes are spending their time. It's almost like over-prep. But at the same token, if you're traveling to get there, there's that whole acclimation thing that, you know, there's arguments saying that, well, again, talking to John Alban, he said, you know, people say either get there two weeks early or get there an hour early. (laughs) Yes. It's either one or the other because it doesn't make any difference if you're there, you know, four days early. It's not – you're not going to acclimate. So you might as well just go get there and deal with it, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean uh – I think if you're going to arrive last minute, the most important thing is just uh, pacing yourself in the race because uh, as soon as you redline at altitude, from my experience, it's so hard to come back and it's such a shock to the body that um, you know you can spend your whole race trying to come back from that effort and uh, your heart rate's going to spike so hard, so high, so fast off the start that uh, just something to be aware of with pacing and uh, not getting too worked up from the start.
0: So, what kind of what kind of mileage are you seeing in your training th- these weeks? Are you are you throwing a lot of mileage in right now?
1: Um, I yeah, I just came off uh, an easy week last week, which was uh, pretty chill. Before that, I was kind of in a big a big build phase for about th- three and a half weeks, where I was I think averaging around 6, 65, 70 uh, miles a week, and with lots of kind of uh, elevation worked in there as well. So that was uh, pretty exciting, and now I'm kind of getting back into a similar kind of feeling with a little bit more specificity thrown in to um, to you know obstacle specific racing and training. And um, but that'll only this will only last a couple of weeks, and then I'll kind of start figuring out the taper process. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about that, um, and I would imagine that – I think that's the thing that a lot of the OCR folk don't quite get is that th- there's definitely a need for taper. You, uh-huh. you, can't, you can't really win and perform optimally, in my opinion, if you don't allow yourself enough recovery time and allow your muscles to adapt and to grow and to get stronger – um, just race after race after race is just never providing you with enough opportunity to get into a better place. It's it's a function of super compensation, which is uh, anybody that's a student of Tudor Bumpa and periodization training should know that, you know, in the absence of having that opportunity to, to regress so that you can progress, that you're doing yourself a, a major disservice. Would you agree?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. Um, I mean, I, I was, training as a cyclist for many years and following kind of a periodized uh, training plan. So the whole, you know, the whole structure and periodization and tapering kind of comes easy for me just because I've been doing it for so long. So um, it's definitely something to, that everyone should take note of. You know, you, you have to have that overload and then you have to have that compensation if you want to get stronger. Otherwise, you're just going to keep beating yourself up against the wall and uh, eventually get sick or injured or something like that.
0: Well, and that's what happens, I think, a lot. Um, you 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 see guys that are doing a lot of races and they're coming up lame. They're actually getting hurt. And uh-huh. I think that they they don't necessarily attribute the injuries to the fact that their bodies have just taken been taken to the limit and they're they're just not getting a chance to recover, and then that sets them up for these injuries. And then what they try to do is work through the injuries and maybe, you know they, they say, well, instead of it being an A race, I'm going to cause it to be like a C race and I'm going to just try to push through and uh, yeah. I had a conversation with a fella just yesterday where he's been injured and he's been having some trouble with his hip flexors and um, his hips been bothering him and you know he's been planning on coming to see me so that I can help him He tells me he's got three races he's cut got coming up and you'll come see me after that <laughs> <And> I'm <laughs> like dude I said why don't you come see me first and then yeah. we'll talk about the race you know yeah
1: then make uh, a plan just,
0: man <laughs> I, and i think that the the nature of this sport so far because it's such virgin territory from a training perspective and i've had this conversation with a lot of um people i respect professionals in the industry from a coaching perspective is it's such virgin territory that there's no there's no standard blueprint where you could look at it and go well Here's what historically these guys have done in their approach, and the times they've tapered, and the times they've, they've, uh, you know, they've they've pulled out and 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 allowed themselves chances to recover. And uh, there's really no blueprint. So what happens is everybody's just throwing themselves out there, and they chase each other, and they just like, yeah. and that's why I'm putting comments to you was about whether the work you're doing is more kind of intimidation factor, or whether you just <laughs> You know, because I I mean, from a personal perspective, I could tell you back in the early eighties, when I was putting on triathlon events, I would call athletes up. And I'm not gonna I'm not gonna name names because I don't want to throw any, anybody under the bus, but let's let's just say that um, top five guys in the world and a lot of them with the name Scott involved, <laughs> and and I would I would say, Hey, so dude, are you coming to the race and Uh, you know, I don't know. Hey, I heard so-and-so has been out in the desert doing four or 500 miles worth of, uh, cycling a (laughs) week and throwing down a hundred miles of, and so what they would do is they'd go out and try to do more than the other guy was doing. Right. Yeah. And it's almost like you goad the guy into beating himself to death before the race, (laughs) you know,
1: that's funny. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, uh, from a, from a perspective of training volume and, um, you know, loads and stuff, it's, It's really hard for, you know, a lot of people and because basically you come out and you get really into the sport, especially, you know, OCR, it's so much fun and it's, you know, such a great community and this and that. So everybody gets really into it. And then, you know, you can keep training and training and pushing yourself from, you know, essentially, I won't say off the couch, but a a low training volume perspective into um, maybe what they're doing now. And then that could last for, you know, six, eight months, maybe even close to a year of just seeing these these gains and these improvements and this and that. And they're just like, oh, yeah, it's so great. You know, I'm getting so strong. But I find typically, you know, that six months to a year period is typically when um, someone's body is just going to give up. And then, uh, you know, no matter what, they <laughs> they they see everyone else doing these volumes and these workouts, but because they haven't built up to it or they haven't um they haven't been training for you know 10 12 years they've been specifically training for maybe only six or eight months that that's when they collapse
0: right well i agree with you i think that what happens is a lot of guys as you suggest they they look at what the what the winners are doing and they assume that that's the recipe that they need to follow and then without the the um the physical preparation the tenacity and the development of the body it's yeah. uh, adequate to take on these loads they there it's a recipe for disaster and yeah. and then you add to that what what I see and obviously what my wheelhouse is and the, the life I lead is that I see a lot of people that are getting injured and um, a lot of it it's just like this the old adage of the the straw that breaks the camel's back you get to oh. this place where you just Finally, have put enough on yourself that your body can't take it, and then you go down. And yeah. you know, there, there may not have been anything really in particular that was working them, but bad mechanics is like the pee under the 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 mattress kind of thing, you know. Yeah. Eventually, that little thing that you were doing wrong starts to manifest into a big problem over time. And the volume volume is what bears it out. You just kind of finally get to a place where it just takes you out. So I think that the the lack of, um, I don't want to say this uh, because I'm afraid people take it wrong, but I'm going to say it anyway, Um, the lack of intellect. And intellect meaning that you just don't have enough experience in the field to really understand what you can or cannot get away with. Is what is a problem and then yeah and then the other end of it is trying to supplement the actual work you should be doing with some other thing in order to duck the work you should be doing is obviously a problem you
1: know? <laughs> yeah. yeah absolutely
0: yeah so like I mean I, I look again looking at back to uh, triathlon uh, doing an event that's an ocean swim and spending your entire training time in a pool because you fear the ocean then it comes time that you need to race and you jump in the ocean you're in a lot of trouble right hmm. i mean you yeah. end up facing currents and you're you're dealing with uh, just the chop and uh, there's just the so many things and, yeah. oh yeah 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 i mean <laughs> my the last race i did was was the last year and it was about a mile swim in the ocean, but there, w- there was a hurricane that came up from Mexico about a week before, so the wa- the, the currents were just gnarly. I, mean, I was planning on getting out of the water in about 24 minutes, 25 minutes. I got out of the water in 44 minutes. Um, wow. And, and there's just no way to prepare th- for that. And, and if I had spent all the time in a pool and not had experience in the ocean, I just would have been really, really in a bad place. Uh, lucky, luckily, I got out of the water alive. I think they pulled, they pulled 180 people out of the water in that race because of, because of the currents. Jeez. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's frightening. So,
0: so are you going um, to go ahead?
1: This brings me to a a question I wanted to ask you. (laughs) Um, I know you, like you, obviously the bulk of your work and your experience or a large part of it is to do with running mechanics and, um, you know, proper form and all this, but. I was I had this thought yesterday when I was running about um, just you know in obstacle racing and you know big mountain running and trail running events it's so rare where you're actually running on a smooth flat um, piece of trail or pavement or something like that and I was you know it's it's easy to kind of focus in on form when you're running on something like that but I guess my question is have you done any uh, work or any kind of given much thought to different running mechanics and how they um, kind of manifest themselves on different types of terrain? I.e., you know, if you're running on downhill on certain grades, what's the ideal, what's the ideal foot strike based on speed? And I realize you know, it's always a pendulum and you always want to be kind of not breaking forth too much, but, when you're going down 30% grades, you know, you have to be breaking somewhat. And when you're going up really steep stuff, there's just such a variety of positions that you have to put your body in to conquer these terrains. And just kind of what your thoughts are on that and how it. Well, that's uh, interesting.
0: Yeah. It's interesting yeah. you bring that up because as I suggested a little earlier, uh, I reached out to Nick Holland because I mean, here's a guy that he he podiumed at uh, the Tour de Giants, which is one of the toughest ultra mountain runs uh, in the world. You know, it's a 205 yeah. mile unassisted run, and you know he puts a lot of time into ultra trail running, and he's he's relatively fast. I mean, uh, yeah, for for an, for an ultra runner, he's fast, and he, he, we're talking, yeah. uh, you know, him being aerobic at around a five. 35, 540 pace, which is, you know, that's pretty awesome. And so uh, realizing that the nature of the work I do is a function of um, proper biomechanics given what I like to refer to as flat response, meaning that there's no influence by environment. Uh, You're not Mm -hmm. having a hill to contend if you don't have rocks or roots to deal with, but given flat response. um, And so I think that what happens with training athletes is that that's where you need to begin. You need to begin with, number one, if nothing is affecting you, what would be the nature of the way you move and what can you do to improve that? And Mm -hmm. so I think what happens is there's carryover in where when you um, instinctively are putting yourself in the appropriate posture and position and cadence and footfall, when you're in flat response, then you're more likely to gravitate towards those mechanics as you're being challenged by environment. But I think that the interesting thing, and what I've really spent a lot of time with lately, is manipulation of cadence. And I don't think there's enough to be said. There's not enough said out there in respect to really commanding and mastering the appropriate types of cadence. Uh, so what I do with athletes is, I, again, speaking in terms of flat response, given that everything is given normal, meaning that you're not going up or down a hill, uh, I like people at 180 strides per minute. And aside from just stride frequency, the contact point and the length of the stride is where the, where the real action is. I like to challenge people to, get, to create greater stride length without exceeding the frequency. And that in itself, that governor in itself, forces you to cover more distance relative to frequency, if that makes any sense to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So
0: so in essence, what you're doing is you're opening up your hips and you're you're putting ground behind you as opposed to reaching out at ground ahead of you. And this is where the majority of the injuries occur is when people overstride in either midfoot heel strike, toe strike, whatever they do. But imposing those braking forces as they're moving across the ground is what caused the most injury. So getting back to um, undulating terrain, I think that you need to manipulate your cadence relative to, the, to the, the radical aspect of the terrain. So if you're going up a real steep grade, clearly what you need to do is you need to grind it out. You've got to take quicker, shorter steps, and I think it's important that you really get into a nice rhythm with your arm swing when you're when you're doing this, and the same thing holds true going downhill, and um, I think it was Scott Jurek, I spoke to him, I don't know, it's been a, almost a couple of years ago now, but we were talking about running mechanics and talking about the art of downhill running, and, you know, I was trying to get out of him the things that he thinks about, and he said something that was really kind of it seemed like a um, kind of a vanilla uh response to what i was asking but he says when he runs downhill he looks at the trees that are on the terrain and he tries to emulate the the position that the tree is in relative to the to the grade so in other words he said trees don't don't lean back or lean forward when they're posted on on a steep grade they're kind of perpendicular to the grade. And obviously what he tries to do is move as quick quickly with his feet beneath him as he can and minimize the amount of braking that you have, but clearly the braking is what protects you from falling. And yeah. you know, it's like it's like surfing. If you catch a really steep wave, you know, you if you try to fight it, you're 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 very likely to be taken out by it. And I think that that is something to be said for running downhill is if you, if you really have a hard time um, maintaining balance when you're moving quickly downhill, then obviously what you start doing is putting on the brakes. So um, a lot of it has to do with just, I think it really has to do with uh, time and tenure. You just got to get out there and practice, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah, no doubt. That's huge.
0: Well, that's what we have planned. We're, We're actually looking to do it on the 20th and, Uh, we may not be able to do it because there's a lot of people committed to other things on that day. And my other weekends are kind of fried, but what we did is we picked an area that's uh, very accessible, but has some steep craggy terrain um, that we could do repeats on. And so what we could do is observe people as they approach the, the uphill and downhill and even work with them while they're running on the flat terrain, but you know, over natural surfaces, as opposed to unnatural surfaces and just, Kind of work with them on, you know, uh, on minimizing the amount of mistakes that they make while they're moving, and the kind of things they should gravitate towards. But it's it's a science. I mean, it's 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 really, uh, in my opinion, it's a very technical sport when you're talking about moving effectively and quickly over these, uh, you know, these treacherous terrains. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's uh, it's basically like any you know, scientific or engineering problem, the more, the more kind of pieces you add to the puzzle, the harder it is to make an analysis. And that's why, you know, it's a lot more realistic to observe someone and um, critique their form on flat ground. And then as soon as you start adding, you know, grade and, you know, rocks and looseness of trail surface and all these factors, it just keeps throwing more and more, kind of data points, and it becomes harder and harder to make a scientific model of the of what's happening. But, um, yeah, it's really it's really an interesting kind of problem to think about.
0: <laughs> well, you got to look at the guys that are really good at it. You know, I, I like to watch Killian Jornet when he runs. Um, mm-hmm. This guy, uh, when he moves downhill, uh, it's just scary how effectively he, he, he managed terrain. And you, but you, if you look at what he's doing, I mean, and you know, incidentally I didn't want to go this way, but I I can't help myself. You look at guys like him and you think in terms of um, guys that are trying to mitigate the terrain with these really heavy soled running shoes. I think that's a big mistake. I I think you really need to be as um, reactive as possible so that your, your musculature and your, your structure is able to adapt and respond to variations in terrain. And when you start to dampen that information, you're setting yourself up for a problem. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. I'm actually uh, more and more amazed by kind of what I can get away with in terms of a running shoe. Like, for example, yesterday I was out on feet for over nine hours and I was wearing um, these Icebug Zeal shoes, which are a fairly minimalist shoe. I think it's a a 4 mil drop and the sole has only got to be a couple millimeters thick. And even then, you know, yesterday when I was setting out, I was like, no, nah, you know, I might need to switch shoes halfway through the day just because there's so much gain invert vert and pounding. But, you know, I finished the day and my feet were totally fine. So it's a, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a testament to what you can accomplish and the proprioception you can have with a, a smaller shoe.
0: Well, I think that's the aspiration, too. I think that the, the more talented you become and the more responsive you become, the less shoe you require. You, you, you're you're going to find yourself being more and more capable. And I think you're also less prone to injury. But, uh, listen, we've got, a, we've got a caller, so let's try to get oh, him on. Cool. And find, yeah. uh, apparently – well, let me just get a mic on him. Good morning, Horatio.
2: Hey, good morning, Richard. How are you doing?
0: I'm excellent. Say hello to Ryan.
2: Hey, Ryan, what's up? Hey, man, how's it going? Pretty good, guys. Um, I just have a question for you, Ryan, off the topic. Um, If you were not racing the championships in Tahoe, who would be your top three males to win it and your top three females to win it? If Ryan was not in the championships.
1: (laughs) Okay, if
2: I was not in the
1: championships, uh, I think, and I mean, a lot can happen kind of, on the day but um I, I really think that cody and uh or i think i think john would win he's just uh-huh. so such a strong runner and he's got this amazing amazingly durable upper body strength with uh given his size that i think it's just a, a killer combination i think i think cody moat would probably finish second and then as far as uh third place i think i might Hit my hat to bracken and he's made a uh, bracken cracker he's made some huge gains this year in terms of his uh, you know his ascending and descending and I know he moved out to Colorado and um, so he'll he'll be all acclimated and stuff so I think he would be my number three pick and then as far as, as far as women I think mm-hmm. um, I know a lot of people are gonna kind of maybe not agree with this but I think that Uh, Lindsay is going to win for the women she's uh you know I train with her all the time and every day and I see the work she puts in and her the size of her engine and her strength to weight ratio and her running abilities and just how she's good she's gotten in the last year um I think she's going to win for the women and I think uh Amelia is going to come second and Claude's going to come third those are my awesome
2: all right (laughs) Cool. And um, Richard, I wanted to ask you a quick question and see if you can explain this. Um, I could um, keep my heart rate at, you know, 180, I'm 38, and I can hold it for a long period of time and I feel fine. Is there a reason why I feel okay at that high of a heart rate, can't hold it for an hour and a half on a training? Um, Is it bad? Am I overusing my body? and
0: that's if you have time to answer that question Sure. well uh, let me ask you a question what do you weigh I weigh
2: 160
0: and how tall are you
2: five nine
0: okay well it really comes down to your mass and your expense relative to mass so for example I weigh a lot more than you and if I was to try to run at 180 beats per minute the expense would be uh, insurmountable for me uh, over an hour and a half. And so I would suggest that I can see where maybe you could support that work for an hour and a half uh, at 180 beats per minute. If the question is whether you think it would be better to be able to function at a lower heart rate, the answer is yes. If you were able to change that response, so in other words, let's just relate it to a pace. Let's say that you're at 180 beats per minute, just hypothetically, you could run a seven-minute pace. If you could run a seven-minute pace at 160 beats per minute, then your efficiencies improve improved by 20 beats per minute. And that would mean that you could support that work for a greater length of time because it becomes a function of expense. It's just like, you know, you got uh, a few bucks left on your credit line on your credit card. Um, when it's gone, it's gone, right?
2: Right, right. Well, I got to so, go see you on
0: where do you live, Horatio?
2: I live in the California, in Berkeley. Okay. I've, well, Horatio, I gotta tell you. Got my, a,
1: uh, go ahead. Yeah. I've got a question for you, Horatio. How much? How much volume do you train? How many? Uh, how many hours a week do you train? Uh, well, or run?
2: I would. It depends. I would say some. Some days it could be like. Do you mean in ta- In terms of time or in terms of miles?
1: Yes. Time. <laughs>
2: Time, I would say two hours, two good hours, uh, and I would say three to four days on those uh, good solid two hours, and then you know,
1: okay,
2: days in between like an hour and a half or even the two hours, yeah. but take it down a bit on on terms of intensity,
1: yeah. Because, for me, if I can weigh in on my two cents, because <laughs> that's a that's a that's a quite high heart rate to maintain for an hour and a half, and so I think there's one of two things happening um or a combination of the two one is you're probably hitting most of those workouts uh feeling very fresh um -hmm. and that's why you're able to maintain such a high heart rate like i know for myself when i'm in any kind of a training block i would never you know i would never be able to come near maintaining that kind of a heart rate in training for that period of time and um and that just has to do with fatigue and uh response and i think Probably another part of it might be um, some sort of uh, genetic disposition to just having a slightly higher than average heart rate. And then heart rate is, you know, they have the whole 220 minus your age, kind of all these predictors yeah. and stuff. But it also comes down to um, a bit of a personal thing. And so it might be just that uh, your heart rate is just a bit higher than average. And, um I've had friends like that who have had that too. So from a training perspective, if you are coming into these uh, these workouts feeling really fresh all the time, you know, every time you do them, which I don't know how often it is, but then maybe um, you're at a point where you can uh, support a higher training load, which is, uh, you know, you could probably increase what you're doing a little bit.
2: Right, I gotta go see Richard maybe before Temecula. I'm going to Temecula, so I'll I'll like to see if I can you know get an appointment with him at some point yeah. too. Well, getting tested would make a big
0: yeah, Test testing you would be a, an advantage for sure because it's not unusual for me to have people come to me that have these anomalies where their heart rates run uh, um, traditionally higher than their friends, and I've had guys come to me and they were concerned that might be something wrong with them. And but I I would like to say that I I, what traditionally what I've seen is in that window of about an hour and a half, and then that's why I asked about your weight is the caloric expense. Even though you're anaerobic the entire time that you're running, there's enough energy to support it for about ninety minutes or so, and Mm -hmm. so you can almost intuitively cut your workouts short simply because when you start to sense that things are just had enough, you just had you just quit and but the the habitual approach to this over threshold training is is not going to improve your aerobic functionality so you could do a lot of what you're doing right now and do it for year after year after year and the likelihood is is you probably won't you'll plateau in your performance you probably won't see a big improvement in your ability to support longer distances at a greater pace so i would definitely suggest that somewhere along the way you get tested and then restructure the way you're approaching your training so that you don't allow perception to rule. You don't want to just say, well, I feel okay, so I'll just do this. It's working for me. Mm-hmm. Because you could be very wrong about what you're doing.
2: Okay, okay. Well, there's only one way to know. i got to go see you. <laughs>
0: yeah, I'm open to it.
2: All right. Thank you so much, guys. Good luck, Brian, and I'll see you guys in the road. All
0: Thanks. right, cool. So, Ryan, what's your uh, thoughts on what I just told him?
2: Yeah, yeah, that makes
1: uh that makes sense as well. I mean, um I think based on uh like a caloric burn, then yeah, if he's if he's anaerobic for an hour and a half, that's uh that's a big effort and yeah, I think what he would need to do is, you know, maybe have those still have those thresholds or you know, high threshold workouts incorporated into his plan, but also, um, focus on, you know, aerobic training and, um, training at a, a lower intensity for longer and kind of mixing in those different modalities into his training at a uh, lower heart rates. And I'm also just, yeah. and I mean, I, I think it is definitely a, a heart rate anomaly situation like you're talking about, but, um, I would just be afraid of
0: you know overdoing it with those kinds of workouts too often. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, And I, again, I I know guys that, that finally they come to see me because they're they're so perplexed by it and because so many people will comment on them especially if they're paying attention to their heart rate. But you know there's there's always always this fear that slowing down will make you slower and
2: mm-hmm. that's
0: that's where a lot of people get stuck when I always when I prescribe exercise that is you know, far lower of intensity than people perceive their ability to to be successful with is, I guess, the term. Um, yeah, the ones that requiesce, the ones that finally wrap their head around it and try it and, and just trust it. I find that those are the people that generally succeed, and they start to really notice a big difference. But as you suggested, it's not a function of staying aerobic all the time. You you have to put in mm-hmm. the high intensity work. But then yeah. you know, I, I, you know, we were talking at great length about uh, form and i think that that's the thing that a lot of people don't have wrapped they don't get that whole you know when they go to gear when they go to speed they everything just goes out the window their cadence goes way way up they overstride they heel strike they smack the ground wrong and and just the entire cost i mean the 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 wheels are starting to fall off the bus as they start yeah. to get close to the finish line and yeah. they're not they're not really focused on becoming impervious to these errors and there's not as much investment in running mechanics as is necessary, I think. So obviously enough, you'd expect me to say that, but, um, (laughs) that's been, that's been my observation having done what I do for so long.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, some people just, like you said, some people just have hearts that beat faster. I mean, it's a, it's a function of, you know, beats per minute and stroke volume. So if you have a a smaller stroke volume, then your heart, will be faster mm-hmm. to compensate to get the same absolutely uh, same fluid flow. You
0: know, i uh, I, I do tests v o two testing for ESPN sports science on occasion. And um, a couple episodes back, I did a test on DeMarcus Beasley, who is a um, a professional soccer player. He's on the u s. team. He's been to the World Cup four times. And I tested this guy, and I had him running. At about a 11 miles per hour with a little bit of a grade. And his heart rate was rolling at about, um, oh, I don't know, 170, 180 beats per minute. And he was burning about 50% of the energy was coming from fat, <laughs> which is bizarre at that high of a heart rate. Incidentally, he was probably, uh, if I recall correctly, he was about a 145 pounds, 5, 9, something like that. But, I mean, when he was at 165, 170 beats per minute, he was 66.5% fat utilization, which in essence means that he could do that all day long. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah.
1: whenever I've been tested, that's kind of what I've uh, I've found as well. My fat utilization is, like, really high up to, like, a very high intensity. And then the other thing that I found when I was testing for cycling uh, a few years ago was that like my lactate production was just extremely low, or I guess the buffering was just so good up to um, you know above above anaerobic threshold? I would be producing. I think the maximum lactate I ever got to was you know around two point six millimoles, and I would be you know completely at threshold or way above threshold, and I would they they'd be picking my finger and they'd be going, oh, you're still at one point. 4 or 1.5 and i'd be like well i can't push much harder and they'd just be like well you're like not <laughs> you're not and you know other guys would get up to 12 or 15 or something like that so
0: that's crazy just kind
1: of weird anomalies like that that are kind of funky i guess
0: and that's why you're kicking people's butt <laughs> yeah maybe that's why well look ryan um i i really appreciate talking to you and i really um you know, I've been saying it all along. I, I picked you to win. Uh, John Albin <laughs> gave me a bit of a scare. I think you're right. I said in the absence of you winning this world championships, I think. Um, but uh, we're going to find out soon. And when you get out this yeah. way, you know, open invitation, man. Come see me. Let's play.
1: All right. Yeah, sounds good.
0: All right, yeah, man. Thanks, 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 for thanks a lot. Me
1: on. It's good talking.
0: Hey, it's always a pleasure, my friend. All right. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.